You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open them to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, we are going to specifically be in verses 14 through 18 today. But I want to read to you starting in verse 11, uh, just to, to keep in mind the context of where verses 14 through 18 come to us this morning. It says in verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. You'll remember a couple of weeks ago we were talking about that verse 13, what it meant to be far off and brought near. And we said that Christ's blood, mentioned there in verse 13, radically alters the Gentile's sinful past, enabling the Gentile to now draw near to God and his promises by being saved the same way as the Jew. And so the past couple of weeks we've been talking about the difference between the Jew and the Gentile, the advantages that belonged to the Jew, growing up exposed to the people of God, the promises of God, the covenants of God, the concept of God and who he was. And so they had advantages over the Gentiles. But we're saying now that those advantages have been decreased and we now see a focus being applied to Jew and Gentile, Jew and Gentile alike. And the emphasis being that they are saved the same way, whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised, it is based on the work of Christ that we enjoy favor with God now. Paul continues this teaching today into verse 14, really highlighting the, the hostility that was existing between Jew and Gentile and between Gentile and God and Jew and God and how Jesus has worked to eradicate that hostility. Uh, to remove that hostility. And so we're going to see today exactly how he does that, both for the Jew and for the Gentile. Our summary sentence for today. My identity is found not in the blood that runs through me, but in the blood that runs over me. For it is the blood of Christ that makes peace possible between me and God and creates unity between me and other believers. My identity is found not in the blood that runs through me, but in the blood that runs over me. For it is the blood of Christ that makes peace possible between me and God and creates unity between me and other believers. For our kids, the family of God is for all people, no matter what they look like or where they come from. Let's just kind of walk through verses 14 through 18 real quick. I want to just make a couple of comments as by way of introduction, and then we'll jump into an actual application type outline for us today. It says, for he himself is our peace, right? Paul very quickly identifies uh, peace, not just as a concept, but as a 
person, right? Jesus is our peace, Paul says here in verse 14, who has made us both one, right? Who's the both there? It's the Jew and the Gentile. So he has taken the Jew and the Gentile, and he is making one person out of those two. He's broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, right? There's hostility that exists between us and others, both between us and other human beings and then also us and God, and really hostility between God and us as well that has to be dealt with, right? So there's hostility that we have towards God. We don't trust him. We don't believe him before salvation, before Christ. We are enemies of God, right? From our perspective, we don't want, we don't want God, and we don't want the things of God. From God's perspective, there's hostility because he is wrathful towards us, rightfully so, right? Wants to bring judgment upon our sin, Right? And then there's hostility between us and others because of sin. Right? We're selfish. We're inclined to crave the things that we want. We saw this in James recently. There's wars and disputes and conflict. Why? Because we want things our way and other people want things their way. And so it breeds conflict. Right? So there's hostility there. Jesus works to break that down, to remove that. Right? He does that, verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances So we're going to see how Jesus deals with the law, right? He's going to deal with it in a couple of ways. One, he's going to deal with it from God's perspective, how he accomplishes things within the law. He removes things that the law was uh, mandating upon us, right? But he also removes these ceremonies and ordinances that really were the defining uh, line between Jew and Gentile. Those things are now minimized too. So he removes or abolishes the law of commandments expressed in these ordinances. Why? that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So there's a peace that God desires both between him and us and then also between us and others. He wants peace. Verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. There's a reminder that Paul mentions here. We all come to God the same way. We're all saved the same way. Jews aren't saved one, de- one way with Gentiles being saved another. We are reconciled both to God in one body. How? Through the cross. And it's by the cross that the hostility is killed. Jesus is killed to kill the hostility that exists, both between us and other believers, us and other human beings, and us and God. Verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who were far off, So Jesus is one who came proclaiming peace. We saw this in the Gospel of John, him preaching peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. Equal access, right? Um, The the salvation that's given to us uh, crosses all lines and allows all of us to have full access to God. So let's... Let's see what this looks like. Um, Jesus, what we're seeing here in verses 14 through 18, Jesus fixes the hostility between these two groups of people, uh, Jew and Gentile, and between each group with God. And he gives us the grounds to have peace with God and to enjoy peace with each other. So there's a vertical and a horizontal uh, dealing here in verses 14 through 18. Peace being extended both vertically and horizontally through the cross. God wants reconciliation with him and for us to have reconciliation with each other. Now, there's plenty of people in the world today that would argue that the, the way for us to find peace is to either do away with religion, right? Just get religion out of the way because it's divisive or to blend all religions together, 
right, to make all beliefs okay, all beliefs accepted, and that by doing either that, blending the religions or removing religion, then we would find peace on this earth. This, this passage speaks in direct conflict to that, right? That the only way to find peace on this earth is through the blood of Christ, through the exclusivity of what Christianity teaches, that it's by Christ, his work, and his blood that we can be saved. Not of our own works, not of our own righteousness, but through the work of Jesus. All right, so let's, I'm gonna break these 14 through 18 verses down into three, three sections for us to see from an application standpoint. Number one, responsibility-wise on us as we seek to not only hear the word today, but to be doers of the word. Number one, we need to embrace the person of peace. We need to embrace this person of peace. Peace is not just a concept that Paul's talking about here. It's a person. It's Jesus. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace. He's the foundation of our peace. Isaiah 9, 6, prophecy in the Old Testament, talking about the coming Messiah Jesus is described as the prince of peace. Micah chapter 5, verse 5. So going back to the minor prophets, Micah chapter 5, verse 5. Talking about, let's start reading in verse uh, 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. They shall, uh, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. A promise of Jesus' coming to be our peace. John chapter 14, verse 27. Jesus talking to his disciples before he goes to the crucifixion. It says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. He's providing this hope and encouragement to his disciples before what's about to come, the greatest tragedy they've seen over the last several years. The one they've been following is about to be put to death. Jesus is warning them and preparing them and saying, look, I'm telling you these things in advance so that you'll have peace in the midst of these troubles. I'm not promising you that the troubles won't come. I'm promising you that you can have peace in the midst of those troubles, a peace that's different than what the world offers. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20. says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He is the person of peace, and we need to embrace him today, to embrace him as our Savior, to embrace him as the Messiah. Now, why? Why is he the person of peace? Why is he described this way? I want to show you a few things that Paul mentions to us in these verses, things that Jesus does or things that Jesus provides that ensures our peace. Number one, he has dealt decisively with the law. 
He's dealt decisively with the law. The Old Testament covenants, the Old Testament uh, requirements and ceremonies and uh, commandments that were given to Israel, the Bible says that Jesus, as our peace, has abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances so that he can make peace for us. Now, what we're going to see here is that by abolishing the law, what's meant there is that he, he certainly gives or extends the forgiveness that we need for wronging the law, for disobeying the law. Jesus ensures that forgiveness can be extended to us, but then he also ensures that there's a satisfaction of the law by he himself keeping the law for us. Now, what's difficult with this passage is if you go back to where we were just a few months ago in Matthew chapter 5, Verse 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So you read here and you're like, wait a second. Jesus is like, I don't come to abolish the law. And then Paul's like, hey, Jesus came and he abolished the law. So like, how's that not in conflict? How's that not, uh, you know, a contradiction? Well, let's kind of think back to what the purpose was for Jesus when he's talking at the Sermon on the Mount, right? There's this assumption and this, this uh, spreading uh, of gossip that Jesus is really trying to contradict the law and go against the law. And so Jesus here at the Sermon on the Mount is clarifying. He's like, look, I'm not here to remove the law and to do nothing with it and to come with like this new way or this new teaching, right? He's like, I'm here to fulfill that law, right? Every iota, every, every piece of it will be fulfilled. It's not going to pass away. It's going to be dealt with right? That's before the crucifixion. It's before his full life of obedience, right? I'm not here to abolish the law. I'm here to fulfill it. Now you fast forward and Paul's saying, look, he has abolished these aspects of the law here. So what's meant now that Jesus has fulfilled the law? What is is being abolished or how do we understand this? I think there's a couple of things that we can note here. First off, that Christ abolished the record of debt that we owed to the law, right? He abolished the debt that we owed to the law. Colossians 2 verse 13 mentions this. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by doing what? Verse 14, canceling or abolishing the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And it's like that that picture of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe where the the White Witch is wanting to hold the, the record of debt over Edmund for what he has done, the betrayal that he has extended towards his siblings, right? And then Aslan dies in his place, and that old magic is is revealed to where he has canceled the record of debt for this young boy. He has died in his place. He has served as that sacrifice. And so Paul in Colossians is reminding us that the record of debt that stood against us, it's been canceled. So yes, Jesus has abolished that aspect of the law. He has abolished the record of debt that stood against us. But secondly, he also abolishes the shadows found in the law. He abolishes the shadows found in the law. Look at just a couple of verses down in Colossians 2 verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. 
Think about what we did in the book of Hebrews where we went through and saw how Jesus is better, better than all the shadows mentioned in the Old Testament, right? We don't need the temple. We don't need the sacrifices. We don't need the ceremonies anymore because all of those things pointed towards Jesus. And now Jesus has come. He has fulfilled those things. He is the answer to all those things. And so he has abolished or set aside these shadows that were previously a heavy part of the lifestyle of the people of God. They are no longer needed because of Jesus. He abolishes the shadows found in the law. And then number three, he abolishes the requirement for us to keep the law by doing it for us. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Why? Verse four, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So how does he abolish the law? Well, he abolishes the record of debt, right? He forgives us. He abolishes the demands of the law upon us, right? Because Jesus fulfills it for us. And then he abolishes the shadows and the ordinances, all these things that were structurally set up to point us to Jesus, to prepare us for the arrival of Jesus. That scaffolding can now come down because Jesus is here, right? Jesus is here. The cornerstone is here. We don't need the structure in place to uphold things until he gets here. And so Jesus does come and abolish the law, and he tears down the hostility by doing so. He's dealt decisively with the law. Number two, he's removed the grounds for hostility by doing that. The the grounds of hostility between us and others and the grounds of hostility that existed between us and God. He's removed the grounds for hostility. In regards to the Jew and the Gentile, think about how now the Jew can claim real no privilege in, in being born a Jew because Jesus has eradicated the privilege there, right? He's taken that away. Now the Jew and the Gentile have equal access to God. These things that were uniquely Jewish are no longer needed anymore. We have no privilege in our uniqueness. We're all saved the same way, right? So think about it in our terms today. There's no uniqueness in where we come from, Right? There's no uniqueness or privilege in our skin color or our ethnicity or the country that we hail from. Right? We are saved the same way. We have entrance into the people of God the same way. And Scripture is very clear about God not showing partiality in regards to where we come from. Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth. This is after he's dialogued with Cornelius. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Look what he says again. He opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Right? The gospel crosses all racial and, and national lines, right? The Holy Spirit infiltrates the hearts of people all over the globe. It doesn't matter whether you're Jew or Gentile. The gospel is for you. Acts chapter 15, verse 9. No partiality with God. It says, And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. 
This is Peter again talking about the Gentiles being saved. No distinction between us as Jews and them as Gentiles. He's cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. Again, these are the Jews that are trying to say, be Jewish if you want to be saved. Peter's like, we didn't even do this stuff very well. Why would we expect these Gentiles to do it? But we believe, verse 11, that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Notice that Peter doesn't say, hey, quit trying to make Gentiles be Jewish, okay? We'll get saved by being Jewish. They'll get saved by being Gentile. It's a different way. God's made an exception for them, right? He's grading on the curve with those guys. But we as Jewish people, we're gonna get saved by continuing to do the things that we're doing. No, Peter's like, look, we're all saved by Jesus. Them too, them too. So quit trying to make them Jewish, right? And so these racial lines are being torn down by by the gospel, by Jesus and his work. No privilege in being a Jew anymore. The grounds that separated the Jew and the Gentile have been removed. Now think in terms of how the temple was set up. The temple was even set up in such a way where the Gentiles could only get to a certain point in the temple and they were excluded from going all the way as far as a Jew could go. And this is what Paul is even judged for in Acts chapter 21. This was a huge deal. In fact, excavations have found uh, these do not uh, trespass type signs that were hung on Herod's temple, right? So not not Solomon's temple, not the temple that was uh, rebuilt after their, um, uh, their captivity, but like Herod's temple. This is one of the signs that was found that was hanging inside the temple of God. It says, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. It was guilty by death. Like, like if, you, if you were a Gentile trying to access certain aspects of the temple, you could be killed for it. And Paul is judged for this because they assume that he's done this with a Gentile and Acts 21, 28, it says, uh, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place, right? They're crying out, this is Paul. He's the one telling people they don't have to follow the ways of the Jews. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. He's arrested for it. He's arrested for what he really didn't even do. But they're assuming that he's doing this. Why? Because he's hanging out with Gentiles. And they're assuming that he's brought them into the place where they're not allowed to be. This was very real at this time, this tension between Jew and Gentile, and Jesus has eradicated that. And so I told you, I've been telling you the last couple of weeks, we don't really think in these terms of Jew and Gentile, right? We don't even think of ourselves as being underprivileged by being a Gentile. And we can be thankful that we don't have to have that conversation really today because Jesus has fixed it. Jesus has fixed that dividing hostility. He's, he's crippled it. He's, he's abolished it. He's removed it so that we do have full access to God. We do have that, that unique relationship now. Um, so he's removed the grounds for hostility. Number three, he's granted us full access to God. So going back to Ephesians 2. He himself is our peace. He made us both one, has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How did he do that? By abolishing the law. He's removed these aspects of the law that were hanging over us. He's dealt with it decisively. So he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. He might reconcile us both to God. He came and preached peace to those who were far off and to those who were near. Verse 18, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 
It's Jesus' work that grants us peace to access God. We have peace with God now. We can access him fully in confidence, knowing that we've been forgiven. Not with the understanding that tomorrow I've got to offer a sacrifice for what I did today. Not with this understanding that sacrifices are offered continually, right? Jesus comes to put an end to that, granting us that full access. Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. The veil in the temple has been torn. We do not need a priest to be our advocate beyond the high priest who is Jesus, right? There is no human being that we have to go to to gain access to God. We have it fully because we've been made priests of God ourselves. So Jesus, the person of peace, deals decisively with the law, removes the grounds for hostility, and grants us full access to God. We embrace him as the person of peace. But number two, we embrace the plan of peace. What we're seeing here in this section of Ephesians 2 is that salvation is not just meant to be understood individually, but we're to see this bigger picture of how God is uniting peoples together as one people, right? So it's not just about individuals, it's about peoples together being being united. So we embrace this plan of peace. Number one, he unites Christians from all nations into one people. And this has always been the plan. You go back to Isaiah 57, 19, it talks about peace being preached to those who are far and to those who are near. Probably a passage that Paul even had in mind when he's referencing the Gentiles being far off in verse 13 and being brought near. Jesus unites Christians from all nations into one people. We no longer think in terms of Jews and Gentiles. The church has become the defining entity for God's people now and forever. Now and forever, that dividing line of this is for the Jews, this is for the Gentiles, that's been eradicated and we've been brought together as one. We as Gentiles have been grafted in, the Bible tells us. We are now the people of God jointly with the Jews, right? No distinction between Jew and Gentile anymore. We've been made one as the church. And we're to pursue reconciliation and to fight against our tendencies to celebrate those who are like us and to reject those who aren't. Let me say that again. In light of this plan that God has to bring peace, not just to individuals, but to peoples, the Jews and the Gentiles being united as one people, we are to pursue reconciliation and to fight against our tendencies to celebrate those who are like us and to reject those who aren't. I put in my notes, we must guard against nationalism, blinding our hearts to seeing others through a gospel lens. We must guard against nationalism, blinding our hearts to seeing others through a gospel lens. Now, obviously, racial reconciliation is a big point of discussion in today's day and age, but I'm telling you, we don't, we don't seek this, we don't pursue this, and we don't love others who are not like us out of guilt or out of a political or social ad- agenda. We do so out of a spiritual one. And it's out of obedience for gospel unity. That's the picture here, is that we are doing this. We are pursuing others from all walks of life, from all nations to the ends of the earth to bring them into the people of God because that's God's plan. And we've given the end of his plan in Revelation where we see people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue 
worshiping the Lamb. How could we not go to every type of person sharing the gospel in hopes that they would be included in that group, right? We have to fight against our nationalistic thinking because our, if we're thinking from our nationalism, it will prevent us from crossing certain barriers. And we'll just, we'll just throw walls up, right? The very walls that Jesus sought to tear down. The walls that said, this isn't for you, right? Jesus says, it's for everybody. And he tears those things down. So we embrace this plan of peace. Jesus unites Christians from all nations into one people. And number two, not just from all nations, but from all backgrounds into one people. There's no distinction within the people of God when it comes to gender or social status or color of skin or ethnicity. We are all one in Christ, right? We're all one in Christ. Galatians chapter 3, verse 27 for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. At Trinity, we use an acronym, uh, GRACE. And each letter stands for an aspect of how we are to see others without partiality, whether it's their gender whether it's their resources, right, slave or free, rich or poor, right? We, we see them with no partiality in regards to their abilities, right? God has gifted us all uniquely and differently. Uh, we don't see people with partiality when it comes to color or ethnicity. We extend grace, the grace of the gospel to all peoples from all walks of life because that's God's plan. That is what he is doing through Jesus, not just saving individuals, but breaking down hostile lines between people groups to make one people of God. Embrace the plan of peace. Number three, embrace other people with peace. We embrace the person of peace, that's Jesus. We embrace his plan for peace to unite people from all walks of life with the same gospel. We are saved the same way. And then number three, we embrace other people with peace. Jesus has done everything necessary to tear down the hostility that we have between us and God. He's canceled the record of death that stood against us. He's given us full access to God. But entwined in all of that, there's also a goal that God has, and that's to unite us with each other, to have peace with other believers. It says Jesus comes preaching peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Not only did he accomplish peace, he proclaimed it. And so number one here, we are to present the plan of peace as an extension of Christ. We're to present the plan of peace as an extension of Christ. Jesus sets the example of preaching peace, and then he calls us to do the same, and he does this post-resurrection with his disciples in John chapter 20, a passage we looked at extensively when we went through the Gospel of John. Verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the first Sunday, the resurrection Sunday, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Right? We talked about how Jesus is the one who grants peace, gives peace, achieves peace, 
proclaims it and preaches it and shares it and then asks us to go and do the same, right? We're to go proclaim that peace that we've been given access to, right? We go and share it with others. We go and share it with others. We're an extension of his preaching, right? He certainly preached to the Jews and there were isolated incidences where he preached to the Gentiles, but this passage says that Jesus preaches to those who are far and those who are near. And part of that understanding should be that we see ourselves as an extension of his preaching so that it does go to the ends of the earth. He has sent us to make disciples of all nations. Christ proclaims peace through his followers today. The way that we gather, the way that we love, the way that we forgive is the way that we proclaim peace to others. And the last point that I want you to see is that we are to pursue the purpose of peace in response to Christ. We would be remiss to have studied this passage and to not see the implications upon ourselves to pursue peace with each other when we're not at peace with each other. If Jesus has done all this work as our peace to make peace possible between us and God and between us and others, How could we ever be content to live not at peace with another individual, right? It is in in contradictory nature to the cross for us to live in a non-peaceful situation with with another person, particularly a believer, because Jesus has worked to eradicate that type of hostility. We're to pursue the purpose of peace in response to Christ. He's our peace. And I told you, why did we go from Sermon on the Mount to Ephesians? Because I told you, We learned what we're supposed to be, and Ephesians is going to help us see how we live this out. We're called to be peacemakers in Matthew 5, 9, right? Blessed are the peacemakers. We talked about what it meant to be a peacemaker, right? We're to help others see each other. We're to to be people who create peaceful environments between themselves and others and others and others and God and man. We're to be known as people who lessen tensions, who seek solutions, who ensure communication is understood. So I would ask you, are you known as that type of person? Are you living out the peace that was purchased for you? Are you living that out in relationship to God? Have you been saved? Have you embraced the person of peace? And then secondary, are you living out peace with other people? Are you pursuing peace with other people? Are you creating peaceful situations? Or are you creating tension? Are you creating disunity? Are you seeking to squash those things? We cannot accomplish God's purposes for us to live out good works, remember, We're not saved by good works. We're saved for good works. We can't live out God's purpose for us to live out good works unless we are united with other believers while doing so. Reconciliation with both God and with other people is a prerequisite to being able to rightly worship. Remember Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount, 23 through 24. If there's a problem between you and somebody else, leave church and go fix it. Leave church and go fix it. Had a buddy of mine who's a pastor who was talking to me this week about a conflict or a a, point of hostility that he has towards somebody else, right? And so I'm letting him vent, and, and he's getting ready to get done. And I said, hey, you know the answer. You know what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to go fix it. You're supposed to go talk about it. Yeah, 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 I know. And I said, and if you don't fix this by your sermon on Sunday, you need to walk out of your sermon and go fix it, because that's what Jesus would tell you to do. So fix it before, so you don't have this awkward situation where you have to get before your congregation and say, sorry, I got to leave because I've got hostility towards somebody, right? Because Jesus says, that's more important than coming and worshiping me because you can't really worship me if you've got hostility towards other people. Fix it, right? Fix it. Hostility and disunity are non-descriptors of the Christian faith and the people of God. 
hostility and disunity are non-descriptors of the Christian faith and the people of God. We are to work against both of these things based on the peace that's been purchased on our behalf. We unite with each other best by remembering our past, remembering that we were dead in our sins, remembering that we were away from God, right, all of us, and understanding the work of Christ that grants us our present. If we'll keep in mind the gospel, who we were and how we've gotten to where we are today by Jesus, it will help us achieve peace with each other. The best antidote to disunity and hostility between believers is a fresh comprehension of the cross of Christ. We are enabled to forgive much because we have, forgiven, we have been forgiven of much more. Listen to what John Stott says. He says, God turns away his wrath, leading us to turn away ours as well. We live out the peace we enjoy with God by pursuing it with each other. Let me read to you Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We put away the bad, we pursue the good, we pursue peace with each other. Colossians, the parallel book to Ephesians, Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Put, then, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Man, if we say that we have peace with Christ if we have peace with God because of Christ, right? And then we want him to rule in our hearts. What does that look like? It looks like us pursuing peace with each other and forgiving each other when we need to. This ought to be a normal part of church life. When there's disunity, when there's frustration, when there's anger or hurt feelings, for people to pursue peace with each other. Not to go get somebody else to do it for you, but to pursue peace with each other as an outflowing of the peace that we enjoy with Christ, right? This is to be normal part of Christian life. And I was so thankful this week. I had a coworker who has been angry at me come to me and express that frustration and anger. And I, and I thanked the person. I said, look, if you hadn't have done this, I wouldn't have known about it. So I commend you for doing the hard thing, and that's initiating a hard conversation with your boss who you're mad at, right? And to initiate a conversation to where we can be at peace once again, to where we can seek to fix things. Now, what we're prone to do in our flesh is to what? To get real defensive when somebody calls us on something, right? Particularly even when we've hurt somebody's feelings, if we think they're being ridiculous and have no reason to have their feelings hurt, we get very defensive and try to explain it away. And let me tell you, that does not lead to peace typically. It might lead to the end of the conversation, right? But doesn't typically lead to peace, and I'm going to tell you, like, God's been challenging me over the, the last year and a half, two years to, to be one who seeks to make peace. And I have the type of personality that if I find out somebody has a fault against me, man, I want to get it fixed quickly. I don't want to wait till the next day. I want to get it resolved. I don't like knowing that somebody may have something against me, right? I want to get that fixed. And so I want to give you just four things that I wrote down uh, as I was studying, things that I'm committed to do when I try to pursue unity with other people, uh, particularly when I'm the one being confronted, 
Because that's the hard part, is when I'm confronted and surprised by something that I have to then react very quickly to get on the same page if peace is going to be achieved. Otherwise, I let that conversation go south by my reaction, right? So when I'm confronted by somebody who's, who's come to me about a disunity issue, here are things that I'm trying to do to make sure that that conversation ends in peace, right? Number one, I'm committed to not getting defensive when someone feels I have wronged them at least at some point, like I'm trying to back off because maybe my initial reaction is to be defensive, but I'm trying to approach conversations where somebody is addressing something with me, something I've done, some fault that I've committed. I'm committed to not getting defensive when someone feels I've wronged them. Number two, I'm committed to seeing things through the perspective of the other person. This coworker that came to me, man, I didn't think she had grounds to be uh, frustrated or angry, right? When the facts are listed out, you should have been okay with these facts, right? But what I had to submit myself to was, one, not getting defensive about it, but two, forcing myself to see things from her perspective, even if the facts said otherwise, she was interpreting things differently, and that was leading to hurt, right? Which leads to number three, I'm committed to viewing the situation through a gospel lens that reminds me I'm not perfect, right? Because I'm typically prone to think that I am perfect in every situation where somebody tries to address me, and it's like, no, you're the one that's wrong. You're, you're hearing that wrong or thinking about that wrong. You've got the facts twisted because there ain't no way I'm wrong in this situation, right? But the gospel reminds me that I haven't obeyed the law. I haven't achieved perfection, right? It's Jesus who has met the demands of the law for me. And then number four, I'm committed to finding responsibility on my part and extending forgiveness and grace to the other as needed. Even in that conversation with her, while I felt like the facts said otherwise, and we went through some of those things and talked about them, I still looked for ways for me to own my responsibility for the hurt that she felt, right? A, a poor job of my communication of the facts maybe had led to her hurt, right? Um, an inability for me to even follow up and continue to remind her of those facts potentially led to her hurt. So even if I felt like, hey, there's there's hurt here, and I'm not technically responsible for you feeling hurt in the big grand scheme of things. There are things that I could have done better that maybe would have minimized that hurt. So let me take ownership and responsibility for that. Let me ask for forgiveness for that part, right? And I believe that that conversation ended with us being at peace with each other because by God's grace, I was committed to these four things as we worked through that conversation. This should be a normal part of church life. When, things are at, when there are things that are breaking unity, amongst people, right, that we become participants of the peace that Christ has given to us. We pursue peace with each other. We have hard conversations when needed, right, and it necessitates that we have a gospel perspective if it's going to end peacefully. Let me encourage you to, to try to meditate on those four truths and adapt those into your life when you're having hard conversations with others, all right? Identity truths to remember as we close. From this passage, every Christian possesses Jesus as their peace with God. Every Christian has full access to God now that hostility has been removed. And number three, every Christian has a calling to be at peace with other believers. These are all true about us if we're a Christian today. Jesus is our peace, full access to God, and we're called to be at peace with others. Let's read our text again. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. 
For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Two points of application, questions to ask yourself. Number one, have I found peace with God through Christ on the grounds of his righteousness versus my own best attempts? Man, don't lose sight of the fact that we've grown up in a culture where it's very easy to think that your good works save you. I love the section in Daniel chapter 9 when Daniel basically comes asking and begging God to relent of his punishment. Look what he says in verse 16 of Daniel chapter 9. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem. He says, not because we've done anything good, because we're still being disobedient. Like, we haven't even gotten it fixed yet. But he says, I am calling to you and asking you to relent of your punishment because of your righteous acts, not because of ours, right? We find peace with God through the grounds of Christ and his righteousness, not our own. Have you put faith and trust in the peace of God, the one who is our peace? Number two, am I in unity and at peace with individuals in my life, particularly other believers, or do I need to take steps to ensure peace? And hear that message today that you have a responsibility to be at peace with other believers. If you're not, if there's something that is driving a wall of hostility, it's somebody's responsibility in that party to fix it, somebody in that party to initiate it, right? And the Bible really says that you have an obligation, whether you're the person who has been hurt or the person who has done the hurting, that you're to initiate. That way it does get done. You don't have to wait on somebody to initiate. Whether you're guilty or not guilty, you initiate to bring about peace. And we do so because Jesus purchased the peace for us. Jesus purchased it for us. Let's pray together. God, we love you and we thank you. And we thank you for the goodness of the gospel. We thank you that as Gentiles, you have grafted us in, that you were not content to leave us far off. You brought us near. You brought us near by the work of Jesus. And we praise you and thank you for that. Thank you for our salvation today. Thank you that it's by Jesus, his work, canceling the record of debt against us coming to be the fulfillment of all the shadows that the Old Testament pointed to, keeping the law for us when we were incapable of doing it ourselves. God, we thank you for our salvation through Jesus. We thank you for the peace that we have with you today. Where there once was hostility on both of our sides, we were, we were hateful towards you, enemies of you, and you were wrathful towards us. We thank you that both of those aspects have been fixed by the blood of Jesus. And we thank you that in spite of our sin and our selfishness, you are working and sanctifying us to where we can have regular, ongoing peace with other believers. And when there's a breakdown in peace, God, I pray that we would be faithful to pursue it and to fix it in response to the peace that we have with you. God, help us to live out that peace faithfully with others. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.